What's up, guys? Before we get into this episode with Bryce, I first want to tell you about our sponsor, Kraken. With Bitcoin trading at all-time highs, it is now time for you to get off zero and add an allocation to your portfolio. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling Bitcoin and other digital assets. Once your account is funded, you can instantly buy, sell, and trade 50-plus cryptocurrencies. As you build your portfolio, you can even go deeper with Kraken's more advanced features. You can earn extra rewards by staking cryptos, buy and sell the latest DeFi tokens, and stay on top of market opportunities with free daily research and monthly reports. Whether you're testing the waters or diving in, Kraken has the tools you need. Even better, they're also the industry leaders in security, so you'll know your crypto is safe and secure. Bryce and I are big fans, and you should go try them out. Head on over to Kraken. Kraken.com, K-R-A-K-E-N.com, Kraken.com. All right, let's get into this episode. I hope you guys enjoy it. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Capital University, the top five business podcast in the world. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts, we greatly appreciate it. Don't forget to rate the podcast five stars, subscribe, and leave a review. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. And we have a very, very, very special guest today. You guys definitely might know him, or at least one of the companies he's built. What's going on, guys? Today, we have Rio Karif. He is really deep in the music industry. He then founded Vivo. Many of you probably have used Vivo or know about it. He scaled that into a massive business over about five years. And then most recently, he served as the chief creative officer at Magic Leap, where they are doing all sorts of augmented reality. Awesome episode. Hope you guys enjoy this one. Let's get into it. So Rio, maybe let's just start with kind of your story and how you built your career and got to the place that you are today. You can maybe kind of help explain that. Sure, of course. Well, thank you again for having me on. You know, my process has been a bit, you know, unorthodox and, you know, my path is really, you know, unique, I think, to myself. You know, I I, I like to build things. You know, I'm, I'm always the most happy in my life, you know, when I go from nothing to something, you know, that kind of genesis, you know, moment, zero to one, if you will. And then every few years, I have to reinvent myself, you know, and figure out how to get back, you know, to that place, you know, where I was happy. Fortunately, I learned that when I was relatively young, you know, I, I think I, I learned that when my early 20s, I think some people never really, you know, quite figure that out, or they always wonder, you know, what it is or how to chase it. I taught myself C++ and how to write code, you know, when I was about 13. I started my first company, you know, when I was, you know, 17 or so. I started doing visual effects, you know, for TV commercials, music videos, feature films uh, in LA. So I was a visual effects editor. Uh, I wrote software for that and worked on, you know, a lot of Super Bowl commercials and music videos. It's an interesting story. My father was a rock and roll photographer, you know, so when he, when he was 17, you know, he shot the photo of Jimi Hendrix uh, lighting his guitar on fire. That was, on, you know, a famous photo in 1967. And then all the way through 1983, he, he art directed, uh, photographed, produced over 700 album covers. So every big record in the 70s, Steely Dan, Elton John, Marvin Gaye, you know, every every big uh, artist he he did the album covers for. So I grew up surrounded by, you know, visual music, if you will, right? The power of music, the power of images, you know, and, and what happens, you know, when you could tell a story and get an emotional response, you know, with, with those two things. So I grew up in that era, in that environment. So music was always, you know, the most important thing to me. You know, music was always the pipeline to the soul, you know, the way to get a pure emotional response, the way to build a, you know, a tremendous audience. 
So I was always, you know, passionate about music, but I didn't always work in music. Having a technical background and growing up in LA, I was always at the intersection of music and technology in the early days. You know, when I was listening to your Mark Cuban, you know, one earlier, you know, I, I remember, you know, getting him CDs, you know, when I worked at Capitol Records so he can digitize them and put them on AudioNet and broadcast.com and him hustling, you know, uh, to do that. So, you know, I worked on the first digital download, you know, in the 90s, the first, you know, way before iTunes and the iPod and all of that. So I was at the dawn of digital music. I worked at most of the record companies and basically at the, at the early days of disruption, you know, at music industry was really the canary in the coal mine, you know, really the first industry, you know, to really be materially disrupted by the internet and by, you know, direct to consumer unbundling of services, you know, so really learned a lot there and then tried to apply that, you know, later on to film, TV, gaming, uh, and everything coming forward. So I, I worked in, in I worked at uh, Capitol Records. I worked at Sony Music. I worked at Sony Corporation. Along the way, I, I, I essentially built businesses for them. You know, I transitioned from the technical side to the business side. I was able to uh, translate technical concepts to non-technical people. I was able to uh, see the big picture in terms of what the value you know was to our industry and to our companies. Along the way, I built a mobile gaming business you know for Sony Pictures before the iPhone. So there was a time, you know, where there were games on phones, you know, before uh, smartphones. I had Wheel of Fortune. I had Jeopardy. I had Spider-Man. You know, we had a lot of good IP uh, there. So, you know, I had hundreds of thousands of people paying three or four dollars a month, you know, to play these games uh, on their phones. I think I was the number two game publisher, you know, in the U.S. at that time. And then I joined Universal Music Group, the world's largest music company in 2005, uh, to build their mobile business. And then after two years, they promoted me to run the global online business for the record company. So I ran the digital business there for just under five years. In that time period, I started focusing on, you know, I, I, I did the first subscription deals, you know, with Spotify, did uh, all of the uh, deals with Amazon, with, with Google, with YouTube, with Apple. But I really was most focused on kind of the, the long-term big problems you know, that, that, that we're facing out there. So for example, are there a billion people on the planet, right, who, who can pay $10 a month, you know, for, for access to music? Probably not, right? You know, but what about the 5 billion people who love music, right? You know, how, how do you get paid, you know, from the attention and passion for that economy? Is it advertising? You know, is it, is it something else? Is it, is it... So what are the ways you can make music like oxygen, right? Or like air conditioning or like electricity, right? You know, where you miss it when it's gone, you don't quite know what you're paying for it, but it surrounds you and you value it in some way. Maybe it's attached, you know, to your real estate or to your car payments, or it's somehow kind of embedded in the fabric of society. How do you get paid, you know, essentially a lot less money from a much larger amount of people? You know, how do you change the models, you know, for how compensation works for creators and artists? And the common thread, and I'll, I'll get to what I did next after that, but the common thread that at the, about this time I started to realize what it is that makes me happy. And it's really building businesses, but but it's more, more than that. It's about kind of an empathy for creators and artists, right? So I was never able to be, you know, I was never a great musician or able to write songs or, or be, but I had a great compassion and empathy for them, right? So... I wanted to help them, you know, find an audience. I wanted to help them make a dollar, right? I wanted to help them 
with, with, with whatever problems they were having, I wanted to try to knock those problems down. And so, you know, with artists, you know, uh, obscurity is the enemy, you know, of their artistry. And how do you do that at, at, at scale? So when I was at Universal, I started saying, why can't we make any money for music videos? We make, the industry spends, you know, $300 million a year making these videos. We license them to everybody, but everybody couldn't make any money. YouTube wasn't making any money. Viacom wasn't making any money. AOL, Yahoo, nobody was making any money. The artists weren't making money. The songwriters weren't making money. The record companies weren't making money. It was like, so it was like the, you know, they were the movie trailer right, of the music business. Uh, and that made sense when they were just given away for free to promote, you know, the sales of albums. But when people stop buying albums, you at some point got to figure out how do I make money, you know, from this thing that I'm giving away for free. A lot of what I focused on was how do I fix the, what's, what's wrong here? What's broken? And the bottom line was there was no scarcity for advertisers, but there was ubiquity you know, for fans and for users. So I had to figure out a way to basically create scarcity in a in an above board way, you know, a way that's friendly to artists, friendly to to fans, and a way that was compatible with the physics of the web. You know, if there was a hundred Super Bowls and all the time and a and hundred ad sales teams could sell the Super Bowl, you know, to advertisers, there'd be no nothing premium about it, nothing valuable, nothing special. It'd be a race to the bottom. Right, in terms of value. But, but there's only one Super Bowl. There's only one sales team right, who can sell that. So they can charge whatever they want because they can get 150 million people all in the same place at the same time. So I was trying to figure out how do I turn music videos for the industry? You know, in, How do I make it as valuable as the Super Bowl? How do I make it as valuable as sports content? How do I make it as valuable as premium television on Hulu or HBO? So that was my goal, was to restore the premium luster, if you will, you know, to, to this uh, to this great content, but doing it in a way that didn't tell the artist what to do. You know, I didn't want to tell Taylor Swift's fans that they couldn't, you know, go to Instagram or couldn't go to her website. I didn't want to tell, you know, nobody wants to be told what to do. You know, the, the, the bias of the web is about empowerment, right? It's about, you know, uh, empowering you to do what you want to do, not doing what somebody tells you to do. So basically I created a company to paraphrase, you know, I created a, a company at Universal, formed a joint venture with Google and YouTube, brought in the other music companies uh, to join it. And essentially that company was called Vivo and that company became, you know, the essentially the exclusive sales arm and distributor, right, for the industry's content. So we would put the content everywhere in an atomized world, right, where content can be anywhere, but we would be the only company right, that can sell access to that audience. We would be the premium brand, we would control audience measurement, the Nielsen, the Comscore, you know, roll-ups, we would control the ad serving, right, and the um, the underlying kind of infrastructure for how that audience, you know, can be reached and sold. We would create original programming and live shows and essentially do that with Google in a partnership because again, YouTube is the most popular place to watch videos. We didn't want to tell artists you know, they couldn't work with YouTube or tell fans that they couldn't do that either. So I founded that company, spun it out of Universal, formed the venture, brought the other people into it. I ran that company for about five years, about 25 billion streams a month, you know, on YouTube when I left about 400 million a year, you know, kind of coming in there, about a billion in royalties, you know, paid out at that time, you know, much more now. So that's really uh, what I built at that time. There was a time where I was trying to basically uh, after the the last uh, two years that I was there, I was really working to try to make it more independent. You know, I learned a lot about corporate governance and, you know, decision making and, you know, the challenges and perils, you know, of a venture. So the company was successful, but ultimately became, you know, like a royalty pass-through vehicle, if you will, for the industry, which is great for the industry, but not great if you want to build long-term enterprise value, 
right? If I want to build a successful standalone company that's worth a lot of money, I have to I had to figure out how do I get the company out from under you know this venture structure and emerge you know with clean uh, governance. And I worked really. I can't get into all the details, uh, but it was very challenging you know to do that. And after two years of trying, I wasn't able you know to get it out to that point. So you know I. I love the company I built. I just wanted it to be more. You know, I wanted to grow beyond music. I wanted to grow beyond advertising. I wanted it to really be standalone, independent, and successful. And I had a path, you know, to do that, but wasn't able to really get it there. So after five years of of building that company, I left in 2015, and I needed to take some time off. You know, sometimes in life you don't know what you want to do, but you you know you know what you don't want to do. And uh, you know, I needed some time to to decompress. You know, from that. I made it about uh, six months and I got a call from uh, friends at Allen and Company and they said, there's this crazy company, you know, in Florida and they're sticking pixels, you know, into the physical world and they're making the digital world and the physical world blend together. And it's maybe in 10 years, it's what replaces the smartphone. Well, I fell for it, you know, a big time, you know, it was really the most exciting and interesting thing that I'd ever seen and come across. The cycles, you know, of, of computing are compressing, you know, they're getting shorter and shorter, you know, what used to take 25 years, you know, now takes 10 years, what, you know, soon will take, well, what takes 10 years will take five years, but it still takes a long time, you know, to, uh, to turn over, you know, the cycles of computing in terms of what comes after the smartphone. So, but I knew that if I didn't try, you know, this, so this company was called Magic Leap. And this company at that time was a, just a research company, right? Didn't have a product, didn't have a, a customer, didn't know necessarily what it wanted to be. You know, when it grows up, Larry and Sergey at Google had just put 650 million into the business at that time. And I didn't have a job description. You know, I didn't have a, a clear role. It was really just come on board and help, you know, help figure this out. But I knew that if I didn't try that, you know, I would always look back with regret. You know, I'd always, I would say I never took that shot. I never really tried that thing that, I, that, that was so exciting to me. So for five years, you know, I worked at Magic Leap and uh, became the chief content officer, you know, basically working to forensically dissect the supply chain right, of, of content, if you will. You know, why would people make stuff for this platform that has no users, right? What are the things you can do with it that you can't do on any other device? You know, why would, what is our right to exist? You know, why should people care? What's the tooling? You know, what are the SDK? What's the infrastructure? What are the APIs? What do we need to build so that one day we can have thousands of flowers blooming? right on our platform. So I built all of those things, you know, built the app store, built identity, built commerce, built SDK and tools, built the strategy, built the third party uh, developer program. I built, you know, hundreds of apps, you know, on the platform, many tens of thousands of developers. And I left in May, you know, essentially, you know, the company got caught in a, in a, in a transition period and had to really focus on enterprise and medical and healthcare and really had to kind of focus its priorities uh, to pick a lane, kind of, if you will. And at that time, after five years, you know, and, and the company pivoting kind of hard to enterprise, it just became uh, clear that it was not the right place for me to be, you know, at that time anymore. But I'm very proud of, I'm still very bullish, you know, on that future. But it's, you know, it's not quite here yet, you know, in terms of the market for that. So it was time for me to leave and figure out what to do next. And Rio, when, when you think about kind of most of your career, it sounds like you really kind of put a line in the sand and said, hey, I want to be a builder. How do you think about investing um, and balancing that with the time that you spend building, right? Is it something where you say, look, I'm going to spend 100% of my time building, 0% time investing, or is there some balance? Yeah, you know, I don't necessarily see a difference, you know, between the two. I'm more of a, you know, maybe it's sweat equity, you know, is maybe the term for it, financially speaking. I've invested in companies. I tend to 
though I tend to be more of an operator. I tend to be more of a builder. If there's a partnership, I'm the person who's, you know, I'm not the person on the yacht, you know, writing, wiring the money. I'm the person who's is going to put my, you know, 150 hours a week, you know, into building something. And that's where I get my satisfaction out of it. So that's tends to be what I can relate to and what I understand. So if I was ever to become a, you know, venture capitalist or to become an, a professional investor, I value operating experience. Like I don't believe, you know, that you can really be a great investor if you've never actually built you know, anything that doesn't mean, you know, that there aren't great investors, you know, who, who haven't built things, but I, I have a bias in a, towards, you know, operating wisdom and experience that comes from actually building things. I, I also believe you don't really learn anything, you know, when things are going well, you know, only when things are difficult and only when things are going down, you know, do you really pay attention? So I think that that's, you know, when we get to the part where we're talking about, you know, advice and wisdom, you know, to me, I've been a part of businesses that are going up and to the right, you know, and it's amazing, but you don't quite often know exactly why they're going up and to the right. You, you think maybe you're killing it on your execution. Maybe the market is just, you know, frothy and, and you're riding that wave. Maybe you're doing everything right. Maybe your product is great, but you don't really know, right? Because it hasn't been tested, right? It hasn't been tested in a down market. It, you don't, you don't, not, none of the other variables have been stripped away. Um, only when things are going to shit, you know, only when when things are plummeting, you know, and it's a real crisis, you know, that's when you really pay attention and you say, you know, that's what, where it separates, you know, the uh, uh, the tourists, you know, from from the from the real serious people at that time. So the most important lessons I've learned in my life have always been, you know, in those moments, like, you know, when you when you burned your hand on the stove and you say, how do I not burn my hand on the stove again? You know, I got to pay attention. You know, here. So that's really where I think you get that that operating wisdom comes from, you know, the not just the good times, but also the bad and the ugly times. So I want to go back to Vivo for a second because Vivo was huge for you. Vivo Vivo was the epicenter of entertainment, music, and video, and you were one of the founders of it. What were what was one of your main goals when you started Vivo? Because actually I I made two joke diss tracks on YouTube and I used Vivo like as a joke. I don't know if you guys can sue me for that. But I used like Vivo as a joke in like the thumbnail at the bottom left. It was pretty funny. But that's just a yeah, sad comment. Sure. I mean the the number one goal, you know, was really to try to essentially how to figure out how to make money. Because uh, everybody was watching the videos but nobody could make a dollar, you know, the artists. And, and to me, it didn't seem equitable. It didn't seem fair that artists weren't getting paid. It also, the rights owners, the labels, the songwriters, the artists, even the distributors like YouTube, when no, nobody was making money. I mean, the average CPM you know, for music videos in 2009 was less than a dollar, right? You know, that's, you know, sub, sub, you know, that's bottom of the barrel. It's not certainly not Super Bowl or, or Hulu, you know, premium television ads. So I wanted to figure out, wouldn't it be great if I could, you know, send billions of dollars, you know, to the music industry? Wouldn't it be great if I could generate a new revenue stream for artists and rights owners and songwriters? So that was the objective. The chat, the, if I want to be critical about it, if I want to try to look at it in a fair and balanced, you know, way, I would say, you know, consumers don't care about that, right? You know, real, real consumers don't care about whether people make money or not make money. So what is the value proposition? You know, for consumers, what is the value proposition for people who love music? So we had to work harder on that. How do we go 4K? How do we go, you know, multi-track and stems? How do we go offline caching and live events? Like, what are the? Th we can't just say 
we're going to create scarcity and raise prices. You know, we also have to do something valuable for artists and valuable for fans. But the, it wasn't sustainable. You know, what was the prior world where we, the industry spent hundreds of millions of dollars making this content and gave it away and nobody made money? That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. You know, when you have a lot of water coming into the top of the bucket, you know, as an industry, you don't always notice the puddle on the floor, right? And at some point when the water starts slowing down, you got to fix the hole, you know, in the bottom of the bucket. And so, you know, that's kind of how I looked at it from a macro industry, you know, point of view is, is it's not right, fair, equitable, or sustainable that we make this, you know, great stuff and nobody, nobody values it. That was my goal was try to return capital back to the investors the artists, the songwriters, the creators. And Rio, and it certainly was successful at that. As we go to wrap up, maybe help us understand, like you've built so many different things and had such success in building them. What are the one or two things that if you're sitting in Bryce's shoes today, 21 years old, um, you know, have a massive audience of people paying attention, but you're interested in building products and businesses, how would you think about that? And kind of what advice do you have for him as he goes on this journey of, of building things you've kind of learned over the years that would be helpful to help accelerate him? The best advice I can give is to work to preserve and protect and build your reputation, right? All that you have left at the end of the day are your relationships with people and the reputation that you have with people, right? You know, do you uh, do you want to be the person, right, that when you're not in the room, everybody says, you know, that guy's such a great guy. You know, he really took care of his team. You know, he really uh, cares about people. He really has his head on straight. You know, he didn't screw me, you know, on this thing, right? So your reputation and your relationships, you know, will transcend everything. And, and there are many times in my life, you know, I've never applied for a job. I've never, you know, uh, looked for a job. It's really just been your relationships and your reputation, right? You know, people who, who know you're a good person, who know you're, uh, you know, that you have a person of high integrity, you know, that carries forward and, and pays dividends down the line. So it's very easy to burn, you know, your relationships. It's easy to be short-sighted. It's easy to, you know, treat people, you know, poorly. So I would focus on, to me, that's the highest, you know, uh, most important thing uh, are preserving your relationships and your reputation and not burning those bridges, you know, over short-term, you know, uh, grievances. Because one time, you know, 10 years down the line, you know, that person, you know, who you, you dealt with, you know, will come back around again. You want to be the person who has that, that golden reputation and relationships because that will uh, carry you through thick and thin. Thank you Absolutely. for the advice. That's fantastic advice. Bryce, you got anything else? Uh, nothing else. Uh, but thank, you thank, so, you. thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. It really does mean a lot. Hey, take care. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. I think people are going to love this one. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you guys so much for listening slash watching all the way to the end. If you did enjoy, if you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. And if you were listening on Apple Podcasts, don't forget to rate the podcast five stars, subscribe, and leave a review. We'll see you guys next time for another episode. Peace.